trust it is well with your soul and uh, trust it is that if you were to die today you'd know you'd go to heaven tonight and if you don't know that and you're not assured of that you can be before you leave the room this morning it's that easy to put your faith and repent of your sin and put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ this morning we're continuing our series on Christ's kingdom and this is kind of important more than I think most people realize. It's more important to realize that uh, what's happening is setting us up for the return of Christ to establish his kingdom. The country was at shock this week as a balloon floated over our nation. A balloon that came from an enemy country. A balloon that even our military didn't know what to do with finally did what they should have done but they it took a while for them to figure this out and we're in a series now we have war in Europe we have a nation east of us a large nation it's building up its military to overtake Taiwan and uh, we are in a time where Jesus said in Matthew 24 before he comes there will be wars and what? Rumors. Rumors of war. Men will hate each other. All kinds of things are going to take place. I visited with a lady uh, about a month ago, and she said, it's all going to get better. I said, I don't know what Bible you read, but you better read uh, Matthew 24. You better read Revelation 6 to 19. Jesus is coming again. We are not in the kingdom. We are in the church age, and it's a different age. It's a same age that will participate in the kingdom, but it's not the same. And so people who believe that we're in the kingdom have this notion that it's going to get better, and uh, it's not. And I've lived on this earth over 80 years, and I can tell you it's not better than it was in the 1950s. And uh, as it was then, we're going to leave on an airplane tomorrow and we've got to go through all kinds of tests and all kinds of things. But what's interesting to me is that when I was a kid, we walked right up to the airplanes and greeted them as they walked the steps into the airplane. Yeah, we had none of that. And uh, we were, and the freedoms that have been slowly eroded out of our life have come so gradual that we hardly notice it except in the last few years we have seen a slide of this nation into a moral cesspool and uh, God is holy we just sang about it holy 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 is the Lord God Almighty and there is a time that he will not put up with this and we have killed over 70 million people in this nation who were innocent you can't get away with that can't get away with that. So pray for our nation and pray for our land. I want to talk to you about the fact that there is, Jesus is announcing, there's a postponement to the kingdom coming. Remember when we started, we said, the early message of John the Baptist and Christ was, repent. Why? For the kingdom of heaven is at and near. He came to set up his kingdom. 
He came to start the millennial kingdom, folks. That was his purpose. Then with the belief of the Israelites, uh, of, the, is, of the Messiah, belief of the Israelites about the Messiah, that he would come in glory and establish his kingdom. And so they were looking for a glorious appearing of their Messiah. Jesus didn't come in glory. He came born in a stable. He came born, as Isaiah predicted, a stem out of dry ground. He said that nobody would desire him if he were to walk on the streets. You wouldn't be able to pick him out other than he was a Jew. You wouldn't be able to pick him out in his incarnation. His message and his works picked him out and showed that he was truly the son of God and the son of man. There can be no kingdom without a king. What is a kingdom if there's no king? And Jesus came, the king is here, the king is at hand. But where is the king today? He's alive and he's in heaven and what is he doing? He's sitting there waiting at the right hand of God until his enemies be made his footstool, till they're conquered. And that's gonna come to fruition, maybe in our day, maybe in the next generation, but it's going to come to fruition. And the enemies of Christ are gonna be made his footstool. His feet will be on their head. And so we read that the opposition of Jesus to Jesus began very early in his ministry. Take a look at John chapter two and verse 13 to 17 and see what Jesus did right off the bat. It's not like Jesus came in and tried to woo friends over to him. He didn't come with political speeches promising everything under the sun. He came and he did some things and corrected some things immediately. John chapter two, beginning with verse 13. Then the Passover of the Jews was near, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem, and he found in the temple those things, those that were selling oxen and sheep and doves and money changers seated at the tables. He found all that in the house of God, the temple, all of this exchange. So Jesus said, this cannot be. Let's have a committee meeting and see how we can work this out. Here's what he said. He made a scourge of cords. That's a whip, right? And he drove them all out of the temple with sheep and oxen. He poured over the coins of money changers and overturned their tables. And to those who were selling doves, he said, take these things away. Stop making my father's house a place of business. Now, how do you think the religious leaders felt about that. They hated it and they hated him. So right off the bat, Jesus' ministry began with opposition. And then we read in Matthew chapter 12, 24, it'll be on the board. But when the Pharisees heard, they said, this man casts out demons only by Beelzebul the ruler of demons, and we talked about that last week. Jesus cast out of a, a man who couldn't speak and couldn't hear, and he cast the demon out, and when the question was asked, he said, they asked of the leaders, is this 
is this really the Son of Man? Is this really the Messiah? And the religious leader said this about Jesus. The good works about which we heard in John, Jesus said, believe them. Remember, we just read it this morning. Believe the works. If you don't believe anything, believe the works I'm doing are from God. And here's what the people are saying. The people are saying, it's of the devil. He's doing this because he's in a, he's in a league with the devil. He's casting out demons. And we pointed out last week, you cannot reject Jesus any more than saying that he's of the devil. How, how worse a blaspheme can you say other than that? Furthermore, his forerunner, John the Baptist, was beheaded in chapter 14. He sent and had John beheaded in the prison. Now there's a change in message here in the Gospels. I can't go through every verse. It's tempting to take the whole book of Matthew and go through it and show you. Then take the whole book of Luke and show you how it compares. Then take Mark and show you as well. And then finish it up with the Gospel of John. We're doing that on Wednesday nights. But in Matthew chapter 13, verse 10, let's take a look at this. This is right after. They said in chapter 12, he's of the devil. So let's see what happens now. Matthew 13 and verse 10 to 15. Read along in your Bible or on your instrument or wherever you have it. The disciples came to him and said to him in Matthew 13, 10, why do you speak to them in parables? And Jesus answered them, said to you it has been given to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it has not been granted. Suddenly the message changes. The parables which you probably heard were like this. It's a simple earthly story with a heavenly meaning. And some parables were given to explain a deep spiritual truth in a very simple earthly story. Now these parables in Matthew 13 are called the mystery of the kingdom. In other words, some things about the kingdom that have not been revealed before. This is brand new truth, and it's in parabolic form. And he said, to them it has not been given. Only believers are going to understand this. For whoever has, to him it will be given, and he will have an abundance of, uh, have abundance. But whoever does not have, even when he has it, will be taken from him. Therefore, I speak to them in parables. Because while seeing, they do not see. And hearing, they do not hear, nor do they understand. In their case, the prophecy of Isaiah is being fulfilled, which says, and this was quoted from Isaiah 6, 9 to 10. You will keep on hearing, but you will not understand. You'll keep on seeing, but you will not perceive. For the heart of the people has become dull with their ears, they scarcely hear, they've closed their ears, or otherwise they would see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their heart and return, and I would heal them. Uh, here's the point. It's judgment. If you don't want to hear the Word of God, you won't hear it. If you don't believe what you hear from the Bible, folks, you're not going to believe it if it's told in plain English. Even though you can see and read, you're not going to understand it. And even though you hear it clearly, you're not going to understand what it says. 
You and I have to have a heart that is receptive to God, receptive to his word, or it really makes no sense at all. You can read it. It doesn't make any sense. But if you really love the Lord and you really love him and you want to know the truth, then God will reveal the truth to you. And that's a principle there. Isaiah, by the way, was a prophet. He was one of the brighter prophets of the Old Testament in the sense that he has more new vocabulary words than any other prophet in the Old Testament. Brilliant. Wrote 66 chapters. A brilliant, beautiful piece of writing. And here's what God says. I'm appointing you a prophet. And here's going to be what's going to happen to your message. Nobody's going to hear you. Nobody's going to understand what you're saying. You know, there was another man that had that same experience in Genesis. Noah. Who believed Noah? Built this great big ark. And if you want to see a approximate size of the ark, go to Louisville or go to somewhere there in Kentucky and take a look at it. Great big ark. And 120 years, they didn't listen to him saying, it's going to we're going to have a flood. Nobody listened until the family went in, shut the door, and everybody that was on outside of that ark died. Approximately, get this, 2.5 billion. Really? Yeah. You just study the Genesis 1 to Genesis 6, average age, 900 years. The uh, average age of having children from 60 to 500. How many kids could you have? My dad always said it was, it's backwards uh, life. When you're young and you can't make a living, that's when you have your children. Then you finally have money, your children are somewhere else. Now you can enjoy them and they're gone. But if you live 900 years, man alive, you might get tired of them. That's the way it goes, isn't it? It's kind of life. But look at Matthew chapter 13 now, verses 34 and 36 through 36. All these things Jesus spoke to the crowds in parables, and he did not speak to them without a parable. This was to fulfill that which is spoken through the prophet. I will open my mouth in parables. I will utter things hidden since the foundation of the world. He left the crowds and went into the house, and his disciples came to him and said, explain to us the parable of the tares and of the field. The first four parables were with the crowd and the multitude. That is, you, you understand that the, those four that were given in, the, the sower, the tares, the mustard seed, and the leaven. Then Jesus leaves the crowd and goes into a house. And there he explains the, the parable of the tares and notice something else that he says in there, uh, in the house. Have you understood all these things as he's taught them in the house, the hidden treasure, the costly pearl, and the dragnet? And he, Jesus said to them, Therefore, every scribe who has become a disciple of the kingdom of heaven, the millennium, if you want to call it that, is like a head of a household who brings out of his treasures new and old. He taught old truth, the kingdom is coming. 
new truth, there's going to be an interval. In this series of parables, there's going to be an interval. It takes time for the seed to grow, right? The sower. It takes time for the tares and the wheat to grow together. And also, when you look at the last parable, that of the dragnet, just before he sets up his kingdom, it's like a fisherman who takes his net and goes to the bottom of the sea and pulls it up, and he's got all kinds of fish in there. And he's got ugly fish, and he's got good fish, and he throws the ugly fish away. The ugly fish are destroyed. The good fish go into the king, which teaches something entirely different. They were expecting a kingdom at this moment. He says, wait a minute. There's going to be sowing of seed. There's going to be tares sown. There's going to be all kinds of things happening. There's going to be a tree that's going to grow, and birds are going to get in the tree. There's all kinds of things going to happen before the kingdom is set up. And we read then, in the next thing we know, he announces a new action. Take a look at... Uh, Matthew 16, 13 to 20, and I'll read Mark 6 to 7. He summoned the 12 and began to send them out in pairs and gave them authority over the unclean spirits. When we go to Matthew chapter 16, verse 13, that missionary journey where he sent them out is over. In Matthew 16, we read, Now when Jesus came to the district of Caesarea Philippi, he was speaking his, to his disciples. Who do people say that the Son of Man is? Now, they've just been on a missionary journey. They've gone to all the people in Israel, only to the people in Israel. And so it was a gloomy trip. The response was not all that good. So Jesus says, what are the people saying about me? Here's what they're saying. He's John the Baptist, come back. He's Elijah. Still others say he's Jeremiah the prophets. Is there anything wrong with these guys? Anything wrong with John the Baptist, Elijah, or Jeremiah? They're all good guys, right? But it's a wrong estimation of Jesus Christ. It's wrong. Then he turns around and he says, okay, in verse 15, who do you say I am? Okay, disciples, what's your opinion of me? Well, Peter stands up and answers, you are the Christ. Christos is the Greek word of the Old Testament, Meshua, Messiah. You are the Christ. You are the Messiah. You are the king. You are the deliverer. And he points it out further. Uh, he said, you're the son of the living God. Now, that is perfect. That's who he is. And Jesus said to him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. I also say to you that you are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overpower it. I will build, not I am building. This is future tense. I will build my church. Not a kingdom, a church. Ecclesia. 
First time it's used in the New Testament. I'll give you the keys of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth, you will have bound in heaven, and whatever you lose on earth, loose on earth will have been loosed in heaven. And he warned the disciples that they should not, they should tell no one that he was a Christ. Now, what does this mean to bind and loose? Here's what it means. You have the freedom as a child of God. You can stand up and authority, authoritatively say, if you repent of your sin and place your faith in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, you shall be saved and God honors it in heaven. You don't have to wimp on that one. You don't have to shrink back. On the other hand, if the church has a cantankerous unbeliever apostate in it, it has the right to excommunicate them out of the church and that'll be honored in heaven as well. Now, we have such a flimsy view of the church, we don't think it has any power at all in these days, especially in America where we all have opinion. But God has given that authority to the church. And it's a serious thing. We'll talk about that later when you get into the doctrine of the church. Then Jesus, look at Matthew chapter 16 right after that, the teaching of Christ about his suffering. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised the third day. He's predicting now his crucifixion. They thought he's coming to set up his kingdom and now he's talking about dying. Remember what Peter said, be it far from you, Lord. And Jesus turned around and rebuked him with the strongest rebuke that he ever gave anybody in the New Testament. Get thee behind me, Satan. Satan. You know, Mark 8, 31 says this. It's on the board. You don't have to look it up. And he began to teach them, teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed after three days. Do you notice there's one thing missing in Jesus' preaching after this? The kingdom is at hand. No longer is he saying that. For the first part of his ministry, he said, repent. Why? For the kingdom is near. It's at hand. Notice that is gone from his message. But he gives some encouragement about the kingdom. Take a look at Matthew chapter 16. And verse 28, and he says, truly I say to you, there are some of those who are standing here who will not taste death until they see what? The son of man coming in his kingdom. Wow. Some of them, not all of them, some. Go to the next chapter, Matthew 17 and read. Six days later, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John, his brother, and led them on a high mountain by himself. I believe this to be Mount Hermon. And he was transfigured before them, and his face shone like the sun, and his garments became as white as light. 
Something happened to Jesus on that mountain. How long can you and I look at the sun without any kind of intermediate glass to dim it down? Not very long. It's amazing to me that we have this bright sun sign out there and, and we find ourselves normally not looking at the sun. We may glance over it, but we don't stand out there and just look. I find that true of my dog. He doesn't either. So you, the sun is so bright you can't look at it. Here's Jesus. His face is as bright as the sun. And his clothes white as light. Now all this time, I remember I told you at the beginning, if you saw Jesus across the street, you would have said in his incarnation, he looks like any other Jewish male. Now the veil is rent away, taken away, and the disciples, these three, see him in all his glory. Notice what else is attached to that. They see him, and he said, you will see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom in chapter 16. So they're seeing a preview of the second coming of Jesus Christ. Now, it's interesting that the Jews did not pick up on the fact that Jesus was going to die and go away. This was a big thought in John. He's going to die and go away. They thought he's going to set up the kingdom immediately. This is news. They're going to see him coming back. And when they see him coming back the second time, they're going to see him in glory like nobody's ever seen him before. And if you read Matthew chapter 24 carefully, don't go when somebody says he's in the kitchen or the Son of Man is in the desert. Don't you believe that? Because when the Son of Man comes the second time, it's going to be like lightning from the east to the west. Everyone is going to see him. There'll be no question. Don't go running off when somebody says the Messiah is here. Because when he comes, every eye living will see him in his second coming. So, the result of this, Moses and Elijah were appearing to him, talking with him about the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, which was very important to them and their sin issues. Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it's good for us to be here. If you wish, I'll make the tabernacles here, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. You know what Peter's thinking about? He's thinking about the kingdom on earth. Now we'll have a kingdom on earth. We'll have a temple for Jesus, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. While he was still speaking, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and behold, a voice out of the cloud said, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. When the disciples heard this, they fell face down to the ground and were terrified. Whenever human beings come in contact with a divine being, what do we do? We fall on our face. You fall on your face. If President Lincoln would come back from the dead and walk down the aisle here, we'd all stand. If Jesus Christ walked down this aisle, we'd all fall on our face as though we're dead. That's what happened to John in Revelation chapter 1. He dismisses the disciples heard this. 
It's really interesting to me. Peter talks about it in 2 Peter chapter 1, 16 to 18. For we did not follow cleverly devised tales when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. We were eyewitnesses of his majesty. We saw him. For when he received honor and glory from the Father, such an utterance as was made to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son whom I am well pleased. And we ourselves have heard this utterance and made, made from heaven when we were with him on the holy mountain. This was indelibly impressed in Peter's mind. Jesus only. So uh, Jesus gives them a preview of his second coming. Which, by the way, is still coming. And uh, about everybody alive here this morning who knows the Lord as their Savior and Lord, uh, you will be coming with him. I promise you that. You will be coming with him in that grand army that destroys all the nations of the world. And you'll be part of the soldiers, but you won't have a sword or a gun. You'll just be riding a horse with him. Lord doesn't need sword and gun. He just has his word. He speaks a word and it happens. Then there's another interesting thing that happens in this part of the gospel. Take a look at Matthew 19. There's a rich young ruler that comes to Jesus and he says, what must I do to be saved? Remember that story? What must I do to be saved? And it's interesting. Jesus doesn't say repent and believe. Jesus says, keep the law. Keep the law. The rich young ruler says, I've kept the law. Is there anybody in this audience that's kept all of the law? Never lied? Never swore? Uh, never coveted? No, we're all guilty. And this guy says to Jesus, I've kept them all. I've kept them all from my youth. No less. Oh, okay. Go and sell all you have and give to the poor. If you've kept them all and you're perfect, then sell everything you have. You don't need it. Give it to the Lord. Lord, take care of you. And what happened to the rich young ruler? He went away discouraged. Now, if this would have been modern-day evangelism, we would have traced him clear through town because we wanted good offerings. But this was the Lord. So here's the response of his disciples. Look at Matthew 19, 23 to 26. And Jesus says to his disciples, This I say to you, it's hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. That's a tough deal. Again, I say to you, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. Now, you've probably heard a story. There's a little, uh, little gate by the big gate, and it's small, so camels can't go through, but if they squeeze, they can get through. That's not so. We're talking here about an eye of a needle. The only way a rich man can go through the eye of a sewing needle is to be soaked in sulfur acid and floated through. It's impossible. That's what he says. It's impossible. But with God, it is possible. 
Salvation for rich men is possible if they repent of their sin and place their faith in Jesus Christ. Salvation is impossible. It's not something you squeeze into. The problem with rich men is they don't need anything. They, rely, well, they, they want something, they buy it. They don't see their need. The rich young ruler didn't see his need. He didn't see that he was lost and never kept the Ten Commandments. Never kept any of the commandments. When it's true, because James comes along and says, if you break one, you've what? Broken them all. We're all guilty. We're all guilty of sin. And we all need to face God. And the only way to face God and live is to put our heart and trust in him and repent of our sin and trust him for our salvation. Furthermore, then we read, uh, with people, this is impossible. Now, Peter raises another interesting question here. In verse 27 of chapter 19, that Peter said to him, behold, we've left everything and followed you. And then will there, what will there be for us? Uh, Jesus said to Peter and John one day, his brother, Andrew said, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. What did these men do? They left their fishing occupation and followed Jesus. And him and awe about it. Should I or shouldn't I? What about my folks? What about my relatives? What will people think? They just did it. And now when they see that this rich man couldn't get in, they say, what's going to happen to us? We've given up everything for the Lord. Seek ye first the kingdom of God and all these things will be added to you. It's not a prosperity gospel. Most of the prophets died in poverty. Paul died in a Roman dungeon. I guess he died, he got his head cut off. Look at this. Here's what Jesus said. Jesus said to them, truly I say to you that you have followed me in the regeneration when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne. What's the regeneration? the restoration of the earth with Christ as its king. With Christ as its king, here's what's going to be your position. You also shall sit upon the 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. Is that a lie or a truth? They've got, they're going to be judges of Israel. Go to the book of Revelation, it'll be on the board. Revelation 21 13 to 14. Look about that new city that's coming down from heaven, the new Jerusalem. There were three gates on the east, three gates on the north, three gates on the south, and three gates on the west. I don't think this is an imaginary spiritual thing. This is a literal city. And the wall of the city had 12 foundation stones and on them were the 12 names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. They are indelibly, from Peter, James, John, and all the way to Matthias in Acts chapter 1, they are on the wall of that city as a permanent reminder of their position with Jesus Christ. You know what the side benefits are? You're going to be there and I'm going to be there if you know Christ. We're going to see this stuff. 
We're going to be there if you know Christ. Otherwise, don't worry about it. You got other words. Now, it's interesting that the chronology of all of this is given in a parable. Turn with me to Luke 19. A parable is given by Christ to head off the thinking that the kingdom of Christ was imminent. The people thought that the kingdom of Christ is coming right now. The king is here. It's going to be here. Next week or so, we'll talk about the crucifixion and the disappointment of the disciples. No kingdom. And even before Jesus ascends in Acts chapter 1, you know what the number one question is? Will you at this time set up your kingdom? What does Jesus say? Oh, yeah. No. Jesus says, it's not for you to know the times and seasons. Here's what you do. You're witnesses of me, both in Judea, Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the uttermost parts of the world. That's what you are. Does that sound like a kingdom? No. That's our job, right? That's where we are. We're in this era between the first coming and the second coming. We're where the tares grow with the wheat. We're where the sower sows the stuff. We're where this tree grows up and birds get in it. We're where we're looking for that kingdom, that pearl of high price. That's where we are. And we read in John chapter 14, Jesus said to his disciples who said, where are you going? Why are you going and where are you going? John 14. You hear it at a lot of funerals. In my father's house or what? If it were not so, I would have told you. If I go, to I go to prepare a place for you, not on earth, where? In heaven. And I'll come and get you and return you to me. Not a kingdom, to the presence of the Lord. Paul picked up on it and he said to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. It's a new era. This has not been known in the Old Testament. It was a mystery. Even though there are gaps when you start reading and exegeting the Old Testament, you see these gaps appearing, especially in Daniel chapter 9 and other places. So we read here, let's take a look at this par parable. Jesus is on his way, his final visit to Jerusalem. He's going to die there. He's going to be crucified. He's passing through Jericho where a very interesting thing happens. A blind man comes out of the crowd, bugs the people, and he's saying, have mercy on me, who? Son of David. That's a messianic title because the Messiah is coming from David. And this blind man realizes who Jesus is. He is the son of David, and he's asking for mercy Christ heals him, fulfills the prophecy of Isaiah 35, which says in his kingdom, there'll be no blindness. There'll be no miscarriages. There'll be no diseases. Isn't that great? 
you're in a medical work, you're out of work. If you're in a preacher, you're out of work too. So some of us are going to be on the employment list. No, I will have things to do. But look, Jericho, furthermore, he visits the home of a notorious, dishonest tax collector. What's his name? Zacchaeus, the wee little man he always sang about in Sunday school. Zacchaeus now invites Jesus to his home, and Zacchaeus makes an interesting statement. I will restore fourfold everything I've cheated out of people. If he cheated you out of $1,000 of taxes, he'll pay you four. Ever heard that from a tax collector? <laughs> he is transformed. He is born again. He is a new man, and he understands the kingdom, a restoration of all that has been lost. Now, this has all happened. And so Jesus gives this parable now, Luke 19, verse 11. While they were listening to these things, Jesus went on to tell a parable because he was near Jerusalem, and they supposed, now listen to this, they supposed that the kingdom of God was going to appear immediately. Jesus tells this story to thwart that idea. So he says in verse 12, a nobleman went into a distant country to receive what? A kingdom for himself and then return. That's interesting, isn't it? A kingdom for himself. That's Christ. That nobleman pictures Christ. And he called 10 of his slaves and gave them 10 minas and said to them, do business with this until I come back. He doesn't say when he's coming back. He says, here's the money. You do business while I'm gone. He's in heaven. He's in a distant country. And he's told his disciples. He's told his believers, work. And when he returned, okay, I'll back up a little bit. Verse 14. But his citizens hated him. They hated this nobleman. Guess who that is? By and large, the nation of Israel. They hated him and sent a delegation after him saying, we do not want this man to reign over us. Do you hear this again? The crowd before Pilate. Here's your king. What did the crowd say? We don't want this man reigning over us. Give us Caesar. Well, that is totally contrary to their nationalistic spirit. We don't want him reigning over us. When he, the nobleman, returned after receiving the kingdom, he ordered that these slaves to whom he had given the money be called to him so that they might know what business they had done. Okay, counting time. King has come back. If you read the parables carefully, you'll notice in the dragnet especially. I gathered the dragnet, you got the good fish and the bad fish. Now we're going to sort this thing out. Who was busy and who was not? They all received the same money. And, uh, when, and he called them 
In verse 16, the first appeared saying, Master, your minna has made 10 minas more. I've been busy. I've invested this money. I've taken this and used it. I took the message you gave me and I used it. And um, he said uh, to him, well done, thou good and faithful slave. Because you've been faithful in a very little thing, you have authority over what? What cities is he talking about? The cities in his kingdom. They're mayors of these cities. Now let's look again. The second came saying, your minna master has made five minna. You know, I, I've done 10, but I got caught in all those video games. <laughs> Wasted some time. I caught doing stuff. Uh, you know, I didn't do the whole schmear. But I got five minutes back. And here's what the Lord says to him. He says, um, I lost my place here. The first has 10 minutes. Well done, good slave. But in verse 18, the second came, your men, he made five minas. 19, he said to them, and you are over, to be over five cities. So it depends on your faithfulness during this time. Get the point? The more faithful you are to God and his word, the more you're going to receive in glory. You ever been at a graduation or you were in a graduation? I've been in couple and I stood in line and uh, some of the guys he's summa cum laude or whatever that is I never affected me much <laughs> you're cum laude whatever you know what I mean you're graduating with honors and I said stood in line and I said you know I'm as smart as they were I could have had that with a little more of elbow grease and discipline. That's probably the way it'll be at the judgment seat. You'll get there by the skin of your teeth. You're saved by the blood of Jesus Christ, but you didn't take to heart that verse in Matthew 6, which said, seek you first the kingdom of God. Then what? All these things will be added to you. And stop and think about it. I've thought about it. How much time I've wasted over the years. Can't get them back, by the way. How much time that really counts. I got a few years left, but you know, that's nothing compared to what I'll have for all eternity. We need to use our heads and be wise and seek first the kingdom of God. Well, finally it comes to the third one. And another came saying, proud as a peacock, Master, here's your minna, which I kept away in a handkerchief. I was afraid of you because you're an exacting man. You take up what you do not lay down and reap what you do not sow. What is this guy accusing Jesus of? Being a crook. Taking from one and exacting from another. He has, he has the wrong opinion of Jesus Christ. Guess what's going to happen to him? He said to him, the nobleman, Christ, by your own words I'll judge you. You 
worthless slave. You're worthless. Did you know that I'm an exacting man, taking up what I did not lay down and reaping what I did not sow? If you really believed that, then why didn't you put my money in the bank? And having come, I would have called it with interest. At least you could have gathered interest. Then he said to the bystanders, to the people who heard the parable, take the minna away from him and give it to the one who has ten minna. Minas. And they said to him, Master, he has ten minas already. Give to the ones that are faithful. Give to the ones that are faithful. That's what we say in church. When we, when we decide what to do, we say, let's give it to the ones that are faithful. Let's give it to the one. Let's, this is an important job. Let's give it to somebody who shows that he can carry through the ministry and get it done. Let's do it to the ones that are here and show their faithfulness. And that's what he's doing here. Then he says, but these enemies of mine who call me a crook, who do not want to reign, me to reign over them, being them here, and slay them in my presence. I'm here to set up the kingdom. And if they didn't follow me, they're not going into this kingdom. They will be killed and shunted into the place of torments, which we call Hades or hell. Serious business, folks. We're not just plopped on this earth by some chance product. We're just not put here to kind of live our life and do the best we can, then pass away, and hopefully somebody will name a street after us, or at least put a tombstone up, at least they could do. You know, we're here with a purpose, and we have the opportunity of all people especially you in this audience. You have the, of all people have an opportunity to serve the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords forever. And you also have the opportunity to blow it all. What is it? Let's stand for prayer. Father, we just come to you and marvel at your grace. I'm just thankful for us who had the five minutes that you still treat us with grace. We didn't deserve it either. I'm thankful, Father, that you have warned us ahead of time, that you have told us your plan, that it's unshakable, that it's irreversible, and Lord, we know that not much we can do about what we've blown, but we know that we have brand new opportunity right now. We can confess our sin as Christians and as Paul said, forgetting those things which are behind, I press on. Help us to do that. Help us to be serious about that. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.